Be as deep a thinker as you can be. Don't settle to stay in the shallows. We'll say it again. Be as deep a thinker as you can be. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. After tucking their three-year-old son, Sammy, into bed one night, the parents heard him sobbing in, uh, in his bedroom. So they rushed back in there and they found him crying hysterically. And he managed to tell them that he had swallowed a penny and he was so afraid he was going to die. And nothing that his dad could say would convince him otherwise. So his dad had an idea and he palmed a penny from his pocket and he pretended to pull it out of Sammy's stomach through his ear. Sammy was delighted. In a flash, he snatched the penny up out of his father's hand, swallowed it and said, Dad, do it again, do it again. (laughs) Some things are meant to be repeated, but others are not. And as Mark continues his biography of Jesus, we're going to find several repeats in this passage. Let's note them. The first one is this. Jesus provides again. Chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples, that is Jesus did, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because there are, they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied, and they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and he immediately got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So Jesus does it again. Jesus provides again. But how easy it is for us to forget. Last week in our study, we left Jesus in Decapolis, a uh, considerable journey from, uh, from Sidon, where he had been in the northeast above, above Israel. He had traveled all the way down to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee to the east side. In that region, a lot, large crowd had gathered to hear him speak, sort of like always happened. And uh, they had been with him for three days, it says, and they had had nothing to eat. Imagine going to listen to a preacher preach for three days with nothing to eat. Jesus was, was really good. Jesus calls his disciples. I'm telling you, by 12 o'clock, you're going to want to get out here to go eat, right? So uh, Jesus was really good. Jesus calls his disciples and he says, I have compassion on these people. They haven't eaten in three days. They're about to journey home. It's a long distance. Some of them, they're just going to pass out along the way. I want to feed them. And he seems to be saying to them, you feed them. And just like before, his disciples are stumped. Uh, where do they get enough food to feed this many people? 
You know, if you, if you don't remember, let me remind you that it's, it's just been not very long ago at all. I don't know how much time chronologically has passed, but Jesus fed 5,000 men in a situation very similar to this. And his disciples didn't understand how they were going to do it then, but they did it and, uh, and they fed those people. Uh, I can imagine that Jesus hoped his disciples would say something like this. Okay, Jesus, tell us what to do, right? But that's not what they do. They seem, to be, they seem to be stumped once again by their own inadequacies, by their own inability to, uh, to do this. Uh, when they didn't ask him, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. Uh, at some point, don't you think the light came on in the disciples' minds? I mean, in, in remembering back to just not too long ago when he did this before, he blesses the bread, serves it. They also have some fish. He blesses that, serves that. And they feed the folks. And when they're finished feeding, there are seven basketfuls left over. Not 12 this time. 12 was the first time. One for every disciple. This time, seven. I think it's too much of a coincidence to not associate the seven baskets with the seven loaves. I I think God is making the point that his resources, his provisions are enough to multiply whatever it is. To, to double it or to provide with it. So there's seven baskets full of food left over. I think probably one for each loaf that they had originally had. I think there's two lessons in this vignette for you and me that are takeaways this morning. In fact, that's what I'm going to do with all four of these do it agains, right? This time a provision again. I'm going to share some, some takeaways for us. So here's the first one that I'd like to give you this morning. When something is impossible for you, look to Jesus. When something is just beyond your means and your abilities, look to Jesus. There are many things that God has equipped you and me to do. He's enabled us to do them, and he expects us to do them. And, uh, and he doesn't, we don't need Jesus to do them for us. I know some of you might think that's going too far, But I think it's true. What I need to do is simply obey. What you and I need to do is we need to obey because God has equipped us. He's called us. He's enabled us. We don't need anything but our own obedience and our own willingness to do what he's told us to do. We need to do it. So when Jesus asks you to love your neighbor as yourself, I tell you what, I really think you can find ways to love your neighbors that would be just something you could come up with on your own. I don't know that you need to have him tell you, oh, go rake your neighbor's yard when their yard is overcome with leaves and and there may be senior citizens that need help. You don't need Jesus to tell you that. You should be able to see such things as that. When when he says to us to encourage one another, you you just need to do that. You just need to find ways to do that with your words and your uh, your resources. But at times, Jesus is going to ask us to do things that are just beyond ourselves, that there's just no way. They're outside my comfort zone. They're outside my abilities. I don't know how to do that. And it doesn't have to be something like feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. I'm not talking necessarily about anything even that far reaching. But I'm talking about just something that just seems beyond your ability to do it, but yet you know that God is asking you to do it. When God asks you to do something like that, I'm telling you, he's going to resource you. He's going to enable you. He's going to equip you. But what he expects of you to do is to look to him. What he expected of his disciples that day was that they would look to him to feed those 4,000 people, just as he had fed the 5,000 earlier. 
What God expects, God resources. And I believe Jesus wanted his disciples to look to him. And I think he wants you to look to him when he's asking you to do something beyond yourself. Like maybe he, maybe you're, maybe you're I don't know, maybe you're at work and there's a coworker there that's really struggling. And I mean, it's outside your comfort zone, but you just know in your heart that Jesus is telling you to go and talk to them about how Jesus has changed your life and how Jesus can help them. And it's just, it's just, man, you don't want to do it. You're scared. Man, look to Jesus. He will enable you. Look to him. Here's a second takeaway from this little uh, vignette of provision that God does again. And it would be this. When God is asking you to do something beyond yourself, look to Jesus, but also don't forget what God has done in the past. Don't forget how God has acted faithfully in the past in your life and in others' lives. The disciples forgot so quickly to remember what Jesus had just done. They didn't remember. Many people believe that this is a duplicate story, that it's the same story as the feeding of the 5,000. And you know why they say that? They say that because doesn't it trouble you that the disciples could forget so quickly feeding 5,000 and then Maybe a month, maybe let's just give it six months. Six months later, he's feeding four and they don't remember the five? So that leads some people to say, well, this is just a duplicate story. It's the same story repeated with different, uh, with different specifics. The, the problem with that is that there are different specifics in these stories. And both of these stories are found in Mar- Matthew's gospel and then in Mark's gospel. All right. So here are two authors that are putting these two stories in their gospels, in their biographies of Jesus. They're putting both of them in, then, in there. And then they're going to have other allusions to both of these accounts. So it's kind of hard to see how Matthew and Mark would not have known that these were just duplicate stories. It does seem strange, however, that the disciples would forget. But, I mean, we find that throughout the Old Testament all the time, don't we? How quickly people would forget what God had just done. So much so that God would tell them to set up memorials. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, and if you read through your Old Testament, one of the things you'll see is that God was constantly telling his people Build this little memorial here. Build this little memorial there so that you'll remember, so that you can tell your children, this is what God did, and you will not forget. Psalm 77, beginning with verse 11, says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What is what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When you're in a situation where God is asking you to step beyond what you, what you think is, is something you can do, what you need to do is first look to Jesus, but then remember what God has done over and over again in the past not with you necessarily, but with other of God's people. But then don't forget to remember what God has done in your life. And you know what? If you don't set up memorials, you're going to forget. If you don't set up memorials, you're going to forget. And you're thinking, well, Jimmy, what, you take a pile of rocks and put them in my yard. Well, if you want to do that, that's fine. But I think the best memorial you could set up is to, is to buy a journal. Is to buy a journal. 
And even if you don't journal every day, call it a journal of God's work in my life. Title it that. And then every time you see God work in your life, and you know it's God working in your life, write it down, date it, tell the story, put it in there. If nothing else, it'll be a great gift for your children and generations to come, or your children's children, or your children's children's children to read about their great-great-granddaddy or great-great-grandmother and their walk with God. So create a memorial. Make a journal where you're writing down the things that God has done so that when God is asking you to do something you, you feel like you can't, you can go back and read. So Jesus provides again, and the Pharisees reject again. The story continues in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, got in a boat, back in the boat, and went to the other side. Now, once again, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they say, Jesus, give us a sign. You know, prove to us that you speak for God. See, Jesus didn't fit in their box of what, uh, of what the Messiah ought to be. So they're like, show us a miracle. And Jesus sighs. Does he sigh in frustration or does he sigh in pity? I, I guess we'll never know, or at least we won't know till, till the new kingdom. But he sighs and, uh, and he says, I'm not giving you another sign. And he gets in the boat and he just leaves them standing there. Here's my lessons for us from this exchange, from this once again. Here's my first one. Be careful not to put Jesus in a box, even if you think it's the box he belongs in. Now, I'm not saying that we can't know things about Jesus and understand about his essence and his character and his person and his work. I believe we can. But be careful not to think that you have Jesus figured out and there's nothing wrong with what you figured out or there's nothing that you can't learn about Jesus. When you think you've got Jesus all figured out, I want to tell you, I believe you're wrong. When you think you've got him in the box that he belongs in, I'm telling you, he's not going to stay there. Now, you may keep him in your box, but he's going to push against your box. And he's going to say, I don't fit in the box that you've created for me. Jesus is the eternal creator God. And his ways, the Bible says, are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways and thoughts are higher than our thoughts, okay? His thoughts are greater than ours. Be a humble learner of Jesus rather than someone who thinks, man, I've got it all figured out. Here's what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. By the way, if that's you this morning, I mean, that's a great verse for you. If you just feel weary, come to Jesus and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's the, that's the line I wanted you to hear. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Always be a learner from Jesus. Don't think you have him fully figured out. And here's my second application or my second takeaway from this exchange. And it's this, why should anyone expect Jesus to give them additional signs if they ignore the ones he's already given them? 
So here are these Pharisees, and they have ignored sign after sign after sign after sign, and then they come and say, give us another sign. They had had so many signs. The issue wasn't their lack of, the, the lack of evidence. The issue was their hardness of heart. And it wasn't that they were hard from birth. They had hardened themselves against the revelations that Jesus had been giving them over and over and over again. Romans 1.18 says, For God's wrath, is, his anger, is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident amongst them because God has shown it to them. You know, not everyone suppresses the truth. Lots of people respond to the truth that God has revealed to them. But Paul says there's a lot of people that they suppress the truth that God is revealing to them. And that's what's happening here. The Pharisees are continually suppressing the signs of God that God is giving them, that Jesus is who he says uh, that he is. Why should he give them any more signs if they continue just to suppress the truth that he's continually give them. And I'm gonna, I wanna make it personal for us today. Why should we expect more signs from God than the one that he's given us if we're not willing to accept those signs? And you say, if you're following and tracking with me and you're thinking with me, you're saying, but I've never seen a sign. I've never seen a miracle. I've never seen God do through Jesus with my eyes, what, what they saw. Why should I believe? Well, on another occasion, a bunch of Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, give us a sign. In this particular case, he didn't say the same thing. He said to them, no sign will be given you except this one last sign. He said, the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the big fish for three days, so the son of man will be buried in the earth for three days. Now here's the point. Jesus said, this is my final sign. This is my ultimate sign for you all. I will conquer death. I will rise from the dead. So if you want a sign this morning, or if you're watching by live stream in the future, and you want a sign that Jesus is God and that Jesus is worthy of us following him, then the one sign you need to check out is the sign of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise that all of us will one day rise from the dead too, okay? But his resurrection is more than just a promise for that. It was a sign to all of us that this is what the future holds. Jesus was the first fruits of those to rise from the dead. The resurrection is the promise of new life. I became a Christian. I became one who follows Jesus because I looked at the sign Jesus gave me, his resurrection. I'm in college. I grew up in the church, but I wasn't following Jesus. And I'm in a, I'm in a religion class, and the religion teacher is teaching us how the Bible is not true, full of myths, etc., etc. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if you are correct, there are so many deceived people in the world. That's what I thought. I'm 19. I'm, no, I'm not 19. I'm 17 years old. I'm 17 years old, maybe 18, because maybe I turned 18. But that class made me sit back and say, well, what do you believe about the resurrection, Jimmy? And it started me on a quest 
of examining the resurrection for myself. And I read, I read books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I, I looked at the evidence for the resurrection and I became a believer and a follower of Jesus because the evidence for the resurrection was compelling. And it was enough for me to say, I mean, it got me to the door and I've told you this so many times, you can only walk into the door, you can only walk through the door of a relationship with God that leads to eternity, it's by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith is it. But you know what takes you to the door of faith? The evidence. And the evidence of the resurrection took me to the door and I stepped through the door of faith and I began to follow Jesus. Here's my point. Listen, if you are looking for a sign for whether you will follow Jesus or not, look no more. The sign has been given. It's the resurrection. And you say, but wait a minute, Jimmy, I didn't see the resurrection with my own eyes. I didn't put my fingers in his side like Thomas or in the holes in his hand. What about me, right? I didn't get to see. Well, I know you didn't get to see. You don't empirically get to test this out because Jesus has risen and is with the Father now. But, uh, but remember Thomas? Thomas did see. And when he doubted, Jesus said to him, excuse me, when he showed himself empirically to, to Thomas, Thomas believed. And then he said to Thomas, he said, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are all of you who will look at the testimony of yours, Thomas, and the testimony of yours, Peter, and John, and everyone else. And they'll look at the evidence for the resurrection, and they will believe. Blessed will be those who look at the evidence and, and yet, it won't be empirical evidence, and they will put their faith in me. Blessed are them. So if you're looking for a sign, go to the resurrection. Now, because Jesus is real and he really loves me, I have seen his hand. I have seen his hand. Remember Phil Schmidt? I've told you this story many times about how during the day, God tells me, Jimmy, you gave up on Phil. That night, I go to see Phil, and at the end of that visit, he says, can I pray? And he says, God, Thank you for not letting them give up on me. I mean, the exact thing that God said to me in the afternoon, Phil prayed. I'm telling you, that was God. That was a sign, right? It wasn't meant to be a sign. God didn't do that as a sign. He did that because he loves me. He did that because he's real. He did that, you know, and it's, oh man, it so boosted my faith. Or the time Ann and I are at Southwestern Seminary, 40 years ago, and we're trying to get back to, to, to Virginia, and we got a U-Haul and no money, and we get a check for $1,000 from someone, unsolicited, that pays for our U-Haul. Did you forget that? All right. Well, that's one of those things that God did. You write it down in a journal, honey, so don't forget. There was a time when Ann, Ann had a migraine after one of, uh, one of our children, and I mean, it was a terrible migraine, and I called for the elders, and they came and anointed Ann with oil, and I walked them to the door and walked back up, and she said, my headache is gone. Hey, are those signs? They're not meant to be signs. They're God's goodness. But did they serve that way for me? Yes. But God does not go, I don't believe, you're not going to put God in my box. I started to put him in a box, Right. I mean, God may give you a sign if you want some other sign, but that's not what he says. What he says is I'm giving one last sign, and it's the sign of the resurrection. Let me, let me move on. I'm sorry. Spending a lot of time here. If you're still on the fence, man, about the good news of Jesus' kingdom, the sign you need to look into is the resurrection. Jesus provided again. The Pharisees rejected again. The disciples misunderstood again. Verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. 
And then, he, and then he gives them, Jesus gives them strict orders. Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they were discussing amongst themselves what they did not, that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how baskets full of leftovers, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? 12, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? A man was watching the news one night and it was reported that a car was going the wrong way down the freeway and he knew his wife was on that freeway so he calls her on her cell phone and he says, honey, be careful. She says, there's a car going the wrong way on the freeway. And she says, dear, there's not one going the wrong way. There's hundreds going the wrong way. <laughs> not everyone is exceptionally bright, okay? And, uh, and I, I hate to say, I mean, no disrespect to Peter, James, and John and all of them, but the disciples evidently were not exceptionally bright either. Because they have forgotten, they have forgotten just about everything they learned. I mean, here they are on this trip and they forgot to pack bread. And Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And you know what they start saying? Oh man, he's, he's upset with us because we didn't bring any bread. And man, and Jesus is perturbed by their lack of understanding. I mean, he says, don't you remember the 5,000 in the basket, the 4,000 in the basket? Man, don't you have ears? Aren't you listening? Don't you have eyes? Can't you see? Are you guys hard of heart? Now imagine that his disciples were pretty discouraged by that, don't you think? I think I would have been. I mean, that's quite a rebuke. That's quite a rebuke by Jesus. Here's my two takeaways for us from this exchange with them and their misunderstanding again, yet again. Number one is beware of religious and cultural distortions that seek to corrupt biblical faith. And this was the meaning of the leaven statement. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What he's, leaven was, what would, it was yeast that would go in the bread, cause the bread to rise. He basically was saying, be careful of the misunderstandings, misconceptions of the Pharisees that can leaven this whole teaching that I'm doing. It can cause you to misunderstand and distort my teaching. Beware of their traditions and their teachings is what he's saying. In other words, he's saying, let the Bible be your teacher. Let me be your teacher, Jesus is saying to them. Let the Torah and let me rightly interpret it for you. Let me be your teacher. And uh, what I think he's saying to us, and here's the takeaway, let the Bible be your teacher, everyone. Let your Bible be the teacher. We, we do need help interpreting it. Let's be honest. I mean, we need help. It's 2,000 years old. The New Testament is. Paul says we see through a dark glass. We need help understanding uh, the Bible, I believe. Uh, that's not to say that we can't learn about Jesus just from picking it up and reading. We can. But there are things that we need help with. So study to show yourself approved as a student of God's word. Every one of us, study to show yourself approved. Let the Bible be your final authority and not what any one preacher tells you the Bible is saying either, okay? I mean, there's lots of us out there that are uh, teaching what the Bible, what we believe the Bible to be teaching. Don't let any one preacher, whether it me or Randy in the back or anybody else, right? Don't let any one preacher 
be your, your final authority, what the Bible teaches. Let the Bible be your authority. And here's my second takeaway. And I gotta be careful here because I don't want you to misunderstand. Be as deep a thinker as you can be. Don't settle to stay in the shallows. We'll say it again. Be as deep a thinker as you can be. Now, not all of us are biblical Albert Einsteins. I don't expect, God doesn't expect that. It's just simply not true. Some of us can be very simple-minded. I don't mean that with any disrespect. We're just maybe not, the, maybe not those analytical thinkers, that sort of thing, right? But wherever you are, be as deep a thinker as you can be and grow in your understanding of the word of God. The disciples didn't think, what does the leaven of the Pharisees have to do with us forgetting bread? They didn't think, they just thought, bread, bread. Oh, he's, he's upset with us about not bringing the bread. I mean, they have absolutely nothing to do with one another. They are thinking absolutely superficially. Jesus is super frustrated that they're not thinking more deeply than that. I want our church family to be a family of biblical students, I want our church family to be a a group of deep thinkers, knowing why we believe the scripture teaches what we believe the scripture teaches. Most Muslims know only what their imams teach them. Before we throw stones at them, most Christians know only what their pastors have taught them. Because somehow we become the authoritative voice. And and again, I'm not trying to minimize. I believe in what I'm doing now. I believe it's helpful. I believe it can help equip you and grow you and change you and mature your relationship with Jesus and hopefully make you love him more, help you to love him more. I believe all of that. But you, you, I am not, I am not the Bible. I, I am trying to interpret the Bible so, but you need, to be the, you need to be the one who studies to understand the Bible for yourself. And our home group, Keith Hubble, this past Tuesday night was challenging our group that the work of the Holy Spirit in our life isn't void, isn't a work void of our responsibility. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't zap us. He doesn't just zap us into being like Jesus. Instead, he takes the word of God, and as we study it, as we take it in, as we understand it, as we apply it, the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it to mature us and to produce fruit in our lives. And we need to stop thinking that somehow or another, God's just going to zap me into becoming a mature Christian. The Holy Spirit is the one that's maturing me, but he uses my efforts to take in the word of God. So you guys, you, you read it for yourself. Throughout the Bible, it is, it is study to show yourself approved. It is let the word of God richly dwell within you. It is take the word of God in your heart. So take away. God wants us to be deep thinkers as deeply as we can to, to be men and women who study the word of God. Jesus provides again, the Pharisees reject again, the disciples misunderstand again, and then finally Jesus touches again, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. 
There's a lot of similarities between this miracle and the one from last Last Sunday at the end of chapter 7, in both cases, remember the deaf mute, mute guy? In both cases, people bring them to Jesus. In both cases, Jesus touches the men. In both cases, he takes them away from the crowd. In both cases, he uses spit to touch the guy's tongue last week. He spits in the guy's eyes this week. Uh, and, then, uh, and then he commands them to be healed. But um, there's, there's a big dissimilarity between these two healings, too. And, uh, and the dissimilarity is that this one takes place in two stages. It doesn't take place immediately. Jesus spits in his eyes and he says, can you see? And the man looks and he says he sees people like trees. And um, which indicates, I think most likely, that the man had had a sight before. He knew what people and trees look like. And he says, I can see, but people look distorted like trees. So Jesus places his hands on him a second time. And this time he's fully restored. Now this is very unusual. It's the only time, actually this is the only two-stage miracle in the Bible. The only time Jesus had to do it in, you know, two stages. So why? Doesn't that, that raises the question, why? Why does Jesus have to do this miracle by spitting on the guy and then by touching him? Why does he do it in two ways? And after all, I mean, he's healed people... I mean, people came to him and said, you don't even have to be there. And he spoke the word. He wasn't even there. And every other time, he, he, whatever he does, does it instantly. Why, why like this? I mean, is it a, is it a more difficult healing? Obviously not. Is he having a bad day? Obviously not. So, so why? And Jesus never tells us why. I'm going to make a suggestion. It's not unique to me. I mean, I, I, I agree with people who came up with this long before I did. But... Um, I think, and this is going to be our takeaway. I want to tell you why I think he did it in two stages, and this is our takeaway. The ministry of, this is the takeaway, the ministry of God, the work of God, will at time take a process rather than be instantaneous. I think the reason why he did it in a a two-stage thing like this was to say to his disciples, it's not always going to be instantaneous. The work of God at times is going to take stages. It's going to it's going to take two stages. It's going to take three. It's going to take more. Don't expect God's transformation to necessarily always be immediate or instantaneous. Many times God will do a miracle in people's lives, and all of a sudden their lives are instantaneously changed. I mean, a, a person is addicted to alcohol, and, and God saves them, and instantaneously they're free from that or some other drug or something, uh, or they're an angry person. And all of a sudden, God saves them and instantaneously, they're no longer angry anymore. God does it in the, in the moment, right? But at other times, God's going to spit in your eye, and, uh, and then it's going to take him touching your eye a little bit later. Sometimes it's a process. Now, this passage really spoke to Dave Conley not too long ago uh, about the reality of this process and, and even about how it might be applied to our own spiritual blindness. So Dave's going to come... And he's going to share a testimony about this, uh, about this last point. I heard a Sunday school teacher talk on this. We were visiting in a, a couple weeks ago, back in January, and he talked about this passage. And I did get excited about it and thinking about how it kind of tied to my testimony. And I came back and I was talking to Jimmy about it. And that's part of how I got up here. But uh, also another thing. So I have this book that my mother gave to my grandfather in 1971 called A Second Touch. And it quotes this passage down at the bottom. That's kind of the, the theme of the book. And it's really about spiritual renewal. 
Um, and I thought that was a coincidence. I heard someone say that coincidences is God's way of doing things anonymous. Might have heard that quote before. But, uh, but anyway, so I've, I've been reading it. I don't, it. I don't know if I ever read it. Somehow I inherited a book. My mom has plenty of books still at home, but I, I ended up with this one. So I've been reading it this week. And um, So I wanted to share with you again, I really appreciate Jimmy sharing some of his testimony or his journey of faith, as I like to think of it. And I uh, just wanted to share share my journey of faith with you and then tie it back to the passage. Um, like many of you, I grew up in a church uh, all my life. don't remember not going to church. And, you know, throughout, throughout those years, you know, I learned from Sunday school teachers, from Bible stories my mom read me, uh, from church services. You know, I learned about God. And I can't say I ever really didn't believe in God. Um, it was just, it was part of what I thought was true in life. Um, importantly, more importantly too, though, I saw people where God was real in their lives. And it was always obvious to me when, when I saw people that, that loved Jesus and were following him. And to me, that was, that was very important in, as a witness to me. Uh, one of those people that uh, impacted me, and we, I grew up, I was at a Mennonite church originally, was a, a Sunday school teacher, and I, I'm pretty sure I was fifth grade. And he challenged all of us to read through the New Testament. And back then, you know, it was kind of King James and not much else, but they had come out with the good news for modern man, which is a much easier read. And so I, I think he gave us copies of that. And I actually read through it one summer. I remember writing, tr- trying to finish it by the time he challenged it. I think he offered us like $5 too, by the way. So <laughs> there was some motivation in that, but, you know, God used that, you know, and, and so I was in that church and then I was actually baptized in that church. I think at 11 years old, went through there, you know, um, that you had to meet with the pastor, and there was a group of us, and, and we were baptized. Um, and my point really about this is that I think as an early teen, I think I was a Christian as I understood, as best I could understand Christ at that point. Um, you know, I remember praying. I remember, you know, sitting in a tree praying to God at times. You know, I would take things to God. Um, I, I understood what sin was. I had times when I felt guilty I, I, and asked for forgiveness. So, you know, the marks of a, of a Christian were in my life, but I was also a very immature young, young boy. Um, so my family switched churches. Uh, we moved across town, and we ended up going to a church that my dad's side of the family attended, a Baptist church. So, and, and there I encountered a youth director. He was, he, I remember he was there one summer, and then he came back when he finished seminary. And he was all fired up for the Lord. He was a great guy. And, and he tried to disciple me. Um, I remember he, he gave me a, a quiet time plan. Uh, that I, and he, and I, I guess he encouraged me to get a Bible I could read. I don't know why I didn't stick with the New American, with the, the good news for modern man. But I ended up, I remember riding my bicycle up to Mercury Boulevard and buying a New Testament that was in the New American Standard version, which I had never heard of. But it wasn't King James. It was a little more readable. So... So again, I think God was working in my life, but I can't say, you know, I, I struggled with trying to have a quiet time. It, it was not easy for me at that point in my life. So also then, at that point, I, so we lived in Hampton. The church was in Newport News, and pretty much all the kids, most of the families of the, of the church went to, Newport, were, went to Newport News schools. So I kind of had these friends at church, and then I had my neighborhood friends that I grew up with, and of course, we went to Hampton schools. Um, and sometimes I didn't quite fit in with the church crowd because of that. I felt like I was always a little bit of an outsider. But, 
Because um, so I kind of had two, two sides of my life. I guess my Sunday life, you know, my church life, and we did things like youth trips and stuff, and then my neighborhood friends. Well, about my, in about 10th grade, one of my neighborhood friends, school friends, basically invited me to go out one night, and I got involved with drugs, marijuana. And that was in 10th grade, and then that just became more and more part of my life as high school went on. And because of that, and I think part of it because it's like, well, you know, I understood that this wasn't congruent with being a Christian, so I kind of had to start distancing myself, you know, from my Christian friends. And by my senior year, uh, you know, I still went to church a lot, but I think by my senior year, I was going, you know, when mom kind of, you know, guilted me into going or made me go because I was pushing away. And then the, the important event, or kind of the, the, the event that I want to share with you, is that, so I, I, I'd gotten accepted to Virginia Tech, and so this is the end of the summer, this is 1980, I think it's like, actually like the beginning of September, because they started late back then. And I was sitting on my bed, and I was thinking about what, I've got all my stuff packed, and my dad was going to drive me to Tech, drop me off, and I was thinking, well, what am I forgetting? You know, I'll probably get up there. There's going to be something that I wish I had brought with me. And as I was sitting there, it hit me that I hadn't even thought about packing my Bible. And, you know, I was purposely pushing God away. I was pushing God out of my life. And I felt like this is when the Holy Spirit really started working on me and saying, well, Dave, you know, if, if you do this, if you leave me behind... And it felt like a door was closing. And I was afraid I was going to literally close the door. And, and would I be able to open it again? And so, I mean, I was, I was physically shaken, to tell you the truth. And so I, I call up the youth director, who I hadn't I'd been avoiding <laughs> as much as I could when I went to church. I called up this, and his name was Merle Boytnot, very interesting name. And he lived just in the edge of Newport News, about three, three miles away. And I, I drove over to his house and... Um, and I, I guess I was talking to him. I can't remember exactly what we, what, I was, what we said. I'm sure I confessed some things to him, told him what was going on in my heart and uh, what I'd been doing. I think he was probably aware of that too, though. And I remember us praying in his, he had a little, like one of those uh, garages sunken. It was turned into a living room, so it was sunken down below the rest of the house. And we're down there praying. And I remember stopping him in the middle of our praying saying, Merle, something's not right. They were praying, but I, I just, you know, something's not right. And, you know, he's, you know, I don't know how he knew, but he, he kind of knew what to do. He said, well, do you still have some drugs? I said, well, yeah, I do. You know, of course, I packed, and it wasn't much. I mean, you can get this stuff wherever you, wherever you go, I guess. But I had a little bag with a, some things in it, all some stuff. Um, and it was already packed away where my parents wouldn't see it. You know, I always kept that stuff out of their, out of their view and kind of hidden from them. And so we, we drove back to my house, went and got the, the little bag, and we drove down to Chesapeake Avenue in Hampton. And there, standing at the edge of the water, I literally threw it, you know, into the Chesapeake Bay. And that thing that wasn't right went away. I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, literally, you mentioned the yoke, you know, take my yoke. I mean, it was, it was like literally something lifted off my shoulders completely. I, I, and, and I knew at that point I was ready to follow Christ, and I was ready. Then the police pulled up and arrested me for littering, but no, just, just kidding. <laughs> that didn't happen, but <laughs> anyway. 
I was guilty, I guess. But. but anyway, so I've been following Christ really since then for 42 and a half years. That's how long ago that was. I'm getting old. You know, I went to Virginia Tech the next day, and I knew I couldn't live the way I, I was living. I had to make a change, and I did. I had to explain to a roommate who I had been friends with in high school doing those kinds of things. I had to tell him I wasn't going to do that anymore um, and had to build whole new networks. And, and God, there's a whole lot, there's a whole other story there that I won't go into. So before I get back to the passage, though, I wanted to mention, so my wife, Karen, who's not here, she's traveling back, went, went with some ladies down to Alabama. But she has some similar parts to her story. We were actually at the same Mennonite church growing up, which is a whole other story, which a few of you have probably heard. Um, but we had left. So, But she grew up in the Mennonite church, and I think she had all the marks of a person who was following, following faith. But she went away to college, ended up rooming with a roommate who was a pastor's daughter. And probably her admonition got her to go to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the small college in Lynchburg that she was at. And um, it was at a retreat, I think, that a, a certain man was, was uh, basically teaching from one of Paul's epistles, and God just opened her eyes, you know. And, and so she, her, her depth of her faith and her understanding of Christ just changed, you know, at that point for her. So she didn't have to go through the drug stuff, thankfully, to get there, but... Um, but anyway, the point being, this is kind of tying, now I want to tie it back to the story and what, what Jimmy was just saying, you know, that I do think, I, and I've seen in my life, because I've struggled, well, what is my testimony? Did I become a Christian that night before I went to Virginia Tech, or was I a Christian beforehand, and exactly, and, and I guess where I'm kind of at, and what I think this story is kind of in it, I think God does touch us, and does, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, reaches out and works with us, and it doesn't have to be just a single event. It doesn't have to be, and, and I think we can be touched, you know, more than once, um, you know, more than twice even. It's not necessarily a two, two-stage thing. I'm not trying to say that's. And I look back at the story and I think about, you know, we had the, the, the 4,000 seekers that were there following, following Christ enough to listen for four days. Yeah, he was an awesome preacher, but, you know, it's pretty impressive that they, they, they were seeking enough to stay with him for four days. You know, the disciples were also there, and they were clearly followers at that point, um, but they were, they were observing and still not fully understanding, you know. And then the, um, the Pharisees, you know, they were deniers. I mean, they were doing everything they could to basically just prove Jesus was wrong. I don't, I don't think they really even wanted a sign. They just wanted to prove that he wasn't the Messiah. I, they probably walked away satisfied. See, he couldn't do a sign for us, you know. Um, but then... Again, the disciples, when they get in the boat, they're, they're still followers, but they're also confused. Um, but I don't think it's that, you know, they were on their journey. I think it was part of their journey of faith, and they were trying to understand things. Um, but they were still following. I think that's the important thing. And then the last scene, we have a, a man who's, who's blind, and I would describe him as desperate and needy. You know, he, he needed Jesus. He, he was ready to be healed. He, he was wanting healing. Uh, you know, Jesus had to lead him by the hand, and he was willing to be led. So, and that's kind of where I was. I feel like, you know, back in 1980, that summer, I, w- I was needy at that point. I was, I forgot to mention this because I didn't really read from my notes, but the, uh, you know, I, I was 
by my senior year too, I was really tired of the drug stuff. It really, it was not fulfilling. It was not, it was not what everyone else made it up to be. You know, like the beer commercials that make it, that we'll see tonight if you watch football about how wonderful life is if you just drink beer. You know, it's, that's a lie, you know, and I, and sometimes we have to experience it to find out, yeah, that's really a lie. It's not fulfilling. And so I was at a point where I, I, you know, I was trying to figure out, well, this isn't working either. But I didn't think I was coming back to God. It just, I think God used a circumstance to get, get a hold of my heart. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. Um, and I'll turn it back over to Jimmy. So, uh, so there you have it. The work of God in revealing himself to us or transforming our lives by the word of God may take a process. And like Dave said, maybe a two-stage process, maybe a three-stage process. Uh, you know, I kind of I see it like the Lord bumps us along, right, to use someone else's word. He kind of bumps us along, right, and, and, uh, and moves us closer and closer to being like Jesus. So press on, everyone, and don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by failure, you know. If you stumble and you trip up, and don't be just don't be discouraged by that. Don't don't give up. So um, we saw Jesus provide again, and let me see if I can remember my four points. We saw Jesus provide again. We saw the Pharisees reject again. We saw the disciples misunderstand again, and then we saw Jesus touch again. And then I had quite a few applicational truths, didn't I? So do you think I should preach this message again? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm there right now, though, is what I'm at, kind of. All right, so uh, here's what I'd like to ask as we wrap up this morning. Uh, focus on one or two of these takeaways and pray about them this week. In other words, I know I've given a lot of different points, and so, I mean, that overwhelms us, and we walk away sort of like, I want to do something for Syria and Turkey, but I haven't done anything yet, right? So I think sometimes when I have so many points, you know, you can walk away and just say, well, that was great, but I don't know what I'm going to do with it. So here's what I'd like to ask you. Would you take one or two of these things and pray about it this week and say, God, you know what? What does that mean to me? How do I change? How do I, how do I respond to what you may have said to me this morning. So let me refresh our minds just real quickly. Um, Is God asking you to do something really hard right now? He's asking you to do something really hard that seems hard to you. Would you do this? Stop depending on yourself and look to Jesus to give you what you need and remember his faithfulness and his power in the past. Here's my second, here's the second thought. Be careful not to put God in a box And if you are a seeker and not a follower, stop looking for more signs. Check out the sign that he said was his final and greatest sign, you know. He conquered death. Um, Number three, decide to be, I'm saying take one of these. Take one or two of these, right? Decide to be a deep biblical thinker. Decide I'm going to invest time in studying God's word. Study for yourself. Don't be spoon-fed by David Jeremiah or Beth Moore or any other teacher. Study to show yourself approved, rightly handling the word of God. Don't be disappointed if God's work in you isn't instantaneous. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so, you know, the work of God in our life is it's a whole lifetime of working in our lives. So um, don't be disappointed if you have some points of failure along the way. Paul said, stick at it. Some sins are hard to overcome. 
But keep trusting Jesus to be at work in you. And finally, if you have a friend who hasn't come to Jesus yet, remember there's often a process in coming to faith, and you can be a part of that. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.